Do be with us, O Lord, uh, this evening as we approach your divine word, that which you breathed out as it were. You inspired holy men in ages past to write exactly what you wanted them to write, even though they used their own language. Nonetheless, it was it is inerrant and infallible. And that's why it's authoritative for us. And you have sent your spirit that and anointed us with your spirit that we can understand. So be with us and teach us, O Holy Spirit, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me to John 6. That's where we are. And we're going to be dealing this evening with, essentially, I'm going to start at verse 59, but we're going to concentrate on verses 66 through 71. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Which, by the way, if you back up, when he said, you got to eat of my, uh, you got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, that was what they were offended at. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, and he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now we have previously seen that Jesus was preaching this sermon in the synagogue at Capernaum. And that sermon where essentially, as I said, is where he said, I am the bread of life, come down from the Father. And he who eats of this bread, meaning he who eats of my flesh and drinks my blood shall live forever. Now this is what those that heard him in the synagogue were troubled with. And 
What they said to him was, this is a difficult statement. And it's not just the fact that, well, we're not fully understanding what they were saying is, this is difficult. In other words, we don't buy it and we don't want anything to do with it. That's essentially what they were saying. And that prompted Jesus to respond in a very, really a severe way towards them because he says in verse 65 there, you'll know, he says, they're not believing him as the true bread from heaven. And the reason that they cannot believe him, notice what he says there in verse 65. He says, the reason you don't believe is because you can't come to me. It has not been granted to you by my father to come to me. That's why you're having a difficult time. Now, that is very similar to what Jesus preached as, as recorded in John 6, 27, uh, 37 and 40 and 44. Just to recap, he says, all the father gives me shall come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And then verse 40 of John 6, this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will not, will raise him up on the last day. Then verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up. So why cannot some people come to Jesus and believe him for who he really is? The answer is they're not being drawn. We can say it's because they're not the elect of God. And the elect of God will eventually come to Jesus. Now, there could be an elect person who refuses Jesus for a while. There are many testimonies to that of people in the past. And yet at some point, if you're the elect of God, you can rest assured that God is going to provide the opportunity for you to trust Jesus. But you cannot come and you don't believe me, Jesus said, because you haven't been drawn to the Father. We're going to deal with that a little bit further this evening as we progress uh, in, uh, through these verses. Now, of course, those he, it says here in our text, Jesus knew who it was that was not going to believe him. And he knows who it is that is going to believe. What do you call that? But predestination, right? He knows. And how does he know who's going to believe him? Because Jesus is the God-man. Because Jesus, as we have already seen in John, can read people's minds. He knows what they're thinking. And he sees their heart. He knows if their heart has been changed or not. That's because he's God. So that's why Jesus always knows who's going to come to him. And he knows 
ahead of time who it was going, who was going to betray him. Now, moreover, when we said that uh, he knows who it was who was going to betray him, you know, after all, the, we'll look at this passages, two passages in a moment. There were passages that prophesied in a roundabout way who it was that was going to betray Jesus. It said he would be a friend and it would said he would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Now we know, as we're going to see, that that is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was predestined to betray Jesus. He was his friend. After all, Jesus chose him to be one of the 12 disciples, knowing, as we're going to see, all along that, that Judas was a devil, because the scripture says it explicitly. Now, <clears throat> we're told in verse 66 that because of the statement that Jesus made that you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, there are some who understood that in some crass, literal way that he was advocating cannibalism. Well, we know from the text, if you even look at the text, you'll understand he's not talking about crass, literally eating his his flesh and drinking his blood, he's talking about believing in him. It outright says that's what it means. But some of these people couldn't get beyond that. And because of that, they withdrew from him, as the text says in verse 66, never to follow Jesus ever again. So what they proved themselves to be was that they were not fit for the kingdom of God. And I mentioned this, I think, previously, that the word disciple simply means a follower. And Jesus had, as we see in the scriptures, many followers, but there were some that followed Jesus for a time, but for some reason, decided not to follow him anymore like these disciples. And then you have the 12, the innermost circle of Jesus, which we're going to see, one of which was Judas Iscariot, the devil. Not the devil, but he's called a devil. Now, talking about those disciples who left, and the fact that they left proves they were never of the faith to begin with. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had the salvation. That's the point. Now, I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, which illustrates very well this point. First John 2, verses 17 through 29. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Christian, I mean children, it is the last hour, 
And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, <clears throat> even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, and notice what it says, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the, of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which we, he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not, not shrink back from him at his coming. Now notice here, the proof they were never genuine believers is because they left. Because he says, that's the proof. If, you, if they were genuine, they would have stayed. And he's saying, you have an anointing. Well, what's that anointing? Believing what, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God come in the flesh, by which, you know what the spirit of Antichrist is? It's not this person coming in the future, per se. The Bible said, I don't want to get off. I probably shouldn't have said that because I'm going to get off. But the Antichrist in the scriptures is any belief that challenges the doctrine of the Trinity and assaults the doctrine of the atoning work of Jesus Christ because that's what they were doing. They left and did not believe that he had come in the flesh. If you cannot be a Christian, I cannot be a Christian unless I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I trust him as the Messiah and have given myself to him. Now, those who don't believe that, they leave. And this anointing, we're going to see, how do I, you and I come to know that knowledge? The Holy Spirit. Now remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you gotta be born again if you're gonna see the kingdom of God. And being born again is mysterious because the spirit comes as he wills. You don't, you don't see the wind come, you don't see it goes. So is the spirit. You really don't see the work. It's kind of mysterious. It's inner, but 
but you got to be born of that spirit. And if you're born of the spirit, guess what? You're going to come to Jesus. At some point, you're going to come to Jesus. These disciples that Jesus was talking about that decided, oh, this is too much for us. We cannot believe that you got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, the thing about it here is, in verse 68, well, let's say this. Who else heard this sermon? Well, the 12 heard that sermon. He preached it to these disciples as a whole, many who were just simple followers and the others, the 12. And when these, these disciples that said, this is too much, we cannot buy this, and we're not going to come to you, Jesus. Jesus then says to them, notice what he says in verse 67, you don't want to go away also, do you? Now, remember, the 12 heard that same sermon. But Peter, when when Jesus asked the question, you don't want to go away, do you? Peter immediately says, look what he says. And in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of of eternal life. Notice he says, you do have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter got it, right? He understood. Where these other disciples, they didn't understand, but Peter understood. After all, Jesus said in verses 58, or look at, uh, look at John 6, 54 and 58. John 6, 54, 58 In 54, he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And in verse 58, this is the bread which comes out of heaven. Not as the fathers had and died, he who eats this bread shall live forever. Peter gets it. He says, oh, by believing in you, I can have eternal life. So, but we got to ask this question. How did Peter come to understand that truth when the others couldn't? Well, and notice also what Peter says in the text. He says, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God and that you are the very Christ, the very Son of God. Now, Understanding that Jesus is the Holy One is to understand he is the Messiah. Now, when we said that Peter got it, you remember Jesus' criticism? If you look back in John 6, look at verse 26. Now, this crowd whom you know is following Jesus. He says, truly I say to you, you seek me not not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Remember we've said, what was the purpose 
of the miracles of Jesus, like the feeding of the 5,000 that he had just done a day before. It was designed to create a sense of awe that there's something special about this person. And in a, in a certain way, all of those disciples says, you know, you are an extraordinary person. So much so that they wanted to kidnap him, remember? And by force, and we you know from elsewhere to use him as, I think, to uh, dispel the Roman, arm, uh, the Roman influence. But Jesus says, if you really understood the sign, if you really understood the significance of my miracle, you would believe that I am the Holy One of God. They couldn't come, they couldn't understand, but Peter understood. And in fact, all the other disciples believed, maybe with the exception of Judas Iscariot. Now, why did Peter believe? I want us to look again. Here's the reason why Peter understood, the others didn't. This is why Peter understood that Jesus was really the Messiah, the Holy One of God. Let me just read Matthew 16, verse 17. We've looked at this passage numerous times, but it, this is, it expresses this truth. When Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Peter said in verse 16, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, meaning Christ is the Greek term for the Hebrew Messiah. We know you're the Messiah. We know you're the Holy One of God. And notice what Jesus said. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. It wasn't that he was brighter than anybody else. Remember, we have said, if you and I understand biblical truth, it's because God has revealed to us biblical truth. It doesn't say specifically in this text, but he reveals it to us by the Holy Spirit. Like in 1 John, it says, you have an anointing of the Spirit that you know that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's because God has revealed it to you. It's because you're one of the elect, and that's why you believe. Turn over to Galatians 1, and look at verses 15 and 16. Now, Paul was recounting his conversion. And as you know, he was the great persecutor of the church. In verse 15, Paul says, But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to do what? to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult 
with flesh and blood. What is he saying? Well, one, he was predestined from his mother's womb, right? Just like it says about Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 1.5, by the way. Exactly like Jeremiah. So this goes to show that if you're the elect of God, the, the, the course that you may take before you embrace Jesus may be a course that can be ugly. You could be the most vile sinner around. Now you think about Saul of Tarsus. He was feared, rightly so. You remember when Stephen was being stoned to death because of his sermon? Where did, the, where did these Jews lay their cloaks at? At the feet of Saul of Tarsus, who was readily condoning the stoning of Stephen. And where was he going when he, to Damascus, but to arrest Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem? That's why <laughs> when he's converted by grace on that road to Damascus, it had to be Barnabas that had to come as a, let's put it this way, as a um, one who could vouch that something had changed with Saul because the, those people said, no, we're not about to be set up because this man is a great persecutor. All that goes to show that at some point in history, this man Saul, who was zealous Pharisee, surpassing, he says, surpassing all his other contemporaries, he was the greatest, and yet he was a self-righteous hypocrite. And he was persecuting Christians because he thought he was doing God a service. And all along, God's saying, you're the elect. You're the elect. And at some point, you're going to be on a road, and Jesus is going to meet you and blind you, and you will never be the same. And he wasn't. Now, <clears throat> that's a good example of divine or irresistible grace, of effectual calling. Paul's the greatest, probably in the New Testament, the greatest example of that. Um, so I won't look at, since I've elaborated more on Galatians, I, I, I won't only put down any notes, those of you who are writing things, put down 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16, because it says there in verse 14, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he, for they are spiritually appraised. So if you and I come to understand truly biblical truth, it's because the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And it proves that 
that the Father gave us to Jesus, and that's why we came. Now, in verse 70 of John 6, we see two major things that Jesus says here. He says, one, did I not, did I not myself choose you, the 12? Now, it's, uh, he sought them out, in other words. And we read the account in Matthew, we see the account of how Jesus chose the 12 disciples. He chose them. He sought them out. Secondly, not only did he say, I chose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. Think about this. Jesus knew all along when he allowed Judas Iscariot to be part of the 12. We're not told how Jesus um, chose him like Nathaniel or uh, Philip or something like that. It just says he was one of the 12 that Jesus chose. But he chose him because he had to choose him. Because he was destined to be the betrayer. He was destined to be the friend who would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. That's why in Mark 14, 21, we've talked about this as a great passage showing divine sovereignty and human accountability. It says there in Mark 14, 21, he says, Jesus says, the son of man is going to go as it has been determined. Predestination, right? But woe to the man who betrays him. It would have been better if that man had never been born. So Jesus knew all along when he chose the 12, one of them was going to be betraying. And that's why at at the Last Supper, Jesus knew exactly who it was. One of you going to betray me. Everybody wondered, is it me? Is it me? One who dips with me, that's the one. And he looks at Judas who says, what you must do, go do quickly. And it says, Satan filled his heart and he left. And he sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, let's deal with that first comment that Jesus made about the choosing of the 12 as I said, it was Jesus who picked them out. We asked the question, why did they follow Jesus? Because we've already seen, because the Father was drawing them. No one can come to Jesus unless my Father draws him. So when the opportunity arises, they will come to Jesus. Now, I've said this before, that there are some young, zealous Calvinists who like to use John 6, 70 as an argument against the Arminians who want to talk about what I would refer to as autonomous will. Some of these zealous Calvinists says, 
I don't like this term, follow Jesus, or I decide to follow Jesus, because that, that's, man does not have free will. To which I've had occasions to say to these young one time, really? Are you aware what the confession of faith is? There's a whole chapter on free will. And there's a chapter on effectual calling. I want you to turn back to the Trinity hymn book to page 678. I think everybody's there. We're first going to look at, see that chapter nine of free will. And I just want to, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but look, look at section three. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will in any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able, now I want you to look at that next phrase, by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. He cannot in himself convert himself. Now drop down to chapter 10 of Effectual Calling and look at section 2. The effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until, until, being quickened and renewed by who? The Holy Spirit. He is thereby, notice that, enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. So what we could say, you want to be a good Calvinist, a good Biblical theologian, understand, oh, there is free will. God never constrains people against their will to do anything. What God does, he changes your heart. And he sets you free from your bondage to sin. So guess what? You want to follow Jesus. You do decide to follow Jesus, in fact. You know, some have talked about that word, um, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws you. Some have made a point that it means drag, okay? Well, words mean what they mean in the context. You gotta be careful on this. Let's put it this way. If, that's, it's, if by dragging it means irresistible, when the Spirit goes to save you, he's going to save you and he will irresistibly draw you to Jesus, no doubt about it. 
But here's what we don't mean by dragging. It's not like someone's out there, the unbeliever, and God says, you're the elect, and you're going to come to Jesus. No, I don't want to come to Jesus. I don't want to come to Jesus. No, that's tough. You're the elect, and you're going to come whether you like it or not. Now, (laughs) I know that's kind of exaggerated, but... No, the Spirit doesn't drag us against our will. He, if he drags us or draws us irresistibly, it's because he's already changed us. That's the point. Now, so the reality is this. We do choose Christ. We do follow him. And Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. He, he says right out, follow him. So we do choose to believe. But we are enabled to believe. That's the key. The Reformed faith has taught divine enabling. That's a simple term. You can remember that. Divine enabling. That's what it teaches. Now to show you the balance in the scripture, turn with me to Ezekiel. Turn over to Ezekiel 18. And look at two verses in Ezekiel 18. The first being verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. The first thing we know about that is God is not some mean ogre as it is portrayed by some. And some Armenians say, you're God. That's what, their misconception, I hate using the word Calvinism. If Calvin were alive, he would probably be appalled (laughs) that there's a whole theology named after him. (laughs) He probably would. But the, the, the point here is that God says, I don't take pleasure in having to destroy the wicked. But I thought you can't come unless you're drawn. Well, yeah, that's true. Now turn over to verse 32 of Ezekiel 18. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies declares the Lord. Y'all tell me what the last phrase says. What does it say? Just tell it all out. Therefore, repent and live. Now, let me ask you, does God repent for you? No, he doesn't repent for me. Does he grant repentance? Oh, yes, because the New Testament says he grants repentance. But he doesn't repent for me. And if I don't repent... Whose fault is that? I mean, this is important. If I don't repent, who's ultimately at fault? I am. I'm at fault. 
When Jesus came out from being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, it says in Mark 1.14, he comes preaching and he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus says. I and you, we have to repent and we have to believe and we do choose Jesus. We do decide to follow Jesus, but we're not gonna follow him unless we're given the power to follow him. That's the point. There's the divine enabling. So you see, you can help people work through this, though as I've said before, this is somewhat, well, it is a mystery how God can hold me accountable and I have no, if I end up going to hell, I have no one to blame for myself for not going, believing in Jesus. And yet I never would have believed Jesus unless I was elected from the foundation of the world and drawn to Jesus. Well, that doesn't make sense to which I've said, it doesn't need to make sense to us. I, I can't, tell you how much that will help you. That's why Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is so powerful. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are my ways your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so because John Otis cannot figure it out Logically, does it mean that it's not true? We accept it because that's what God's word says. And we leave it right there. To God, who is the sovereign God, it makes total sense to him. Now, As we said, Jesus said he knew all along that Judas Iscariot was prophesied to be the one who would betray him. He had to choose him in the sense to fulfill prophecy. I want us to take, take a look at two prophecies. Turn to Psalm 41, verse 9. You know, something about the Psalms that will help you in interpreting scripture, there are what we call types in the Old Testament that are picturing the coming Messiah, but it also has a meaning in the present context that it was given. So we could say a, a double meaning. And that's why in theology, we can refer to messianic psalms that are talking about Jesus. One of the most dramatic is Psalm 22. You want a psalm that's so messianic, it records almost identical to what Jesus said on the cross. Sometimes you just read Psalm 22 and you're gonna go, wow. But notice what, Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, 
has lifted up his seal against me. That's exactly what Judas Iscariot did. He was his friend. Do you remember when when Judas was leading the guards to arrest Jesus? What did Jesus do? I mean, Judas do? Do you remember? Well, it's a sign. It's two things. He kissed him on the cheek. Well, one, it was a sign that here's the man you need to get. Can you imagine that encounter, what Jesus thought, and he received that kiss by his, quote, friend who has come to betray him? Then turn over to Zechariah chapter 11. And let's look at verses 12 and 13, which most theologians, rightly so, see this as a messianic prophecy. And I, uh, so it was broken on that day. Well, no, verse 12. And I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord." You know, if you read Matthew 27, Judas is there. Well, let's back up. Could the Sanhedrin have given him 29 pieces of silver or 50 pieces? Sure they could have. Isn't it interesting? They gave him precisely 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because it was predestined. That's what would be given. And when Judas, the predestined betrayer of Jesus, the, a, a devil, realizes that he was being scourged and they were going to kill him, he is so upset and distraught, he takes the, the 30 pieces and where did he throw it? In the temple. He didn't throw it out here in the ground, out here. No, he threw it in the temple. Where did it say in Zechariah he would throw it? In the temple. And then he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. He didn't say, well, I'm, I'm the predestined one. Woe is me. God gave me a raw deal, and I was going to be the predestined one to lead to the death of Jesus. No, he says, I 
have betrayed, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He took upon himself full responsibility for that hideous act. And then he just couldn't live with himself and went out and hanged himself. And as the Bible says, he went to his own place, which means he went to hell. And what did they uh, do with the 30 pieces of silver? They bought a potter's field with the 30 pieces of silver. They could have done something else with it. No, because prophecy says it. And so what we see here, brethren, is this wonderful portrayal that Jesus says, you've got to come and believe me. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what that means, Jesus says, is you've got to to believe I am the one sent from the Father to atone for your sins, and I did atone for them on the cross of Calvary, where I shed my blood. That's what it means to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That shows you how bad Roman Catholicism is when they, y'all probably know what they actually believe when the priest gives the, uh, does the mass Rome has taught. Though that looks like today we had the Lord's Supper, right? What Rome teaches is that though that looks like bread and though that looks like wine, it really is the actual body of Jesus. And it actually, actually is the blood of Jesus and the term that Rome assigns to it is called transubstantiation. And so Rome has never understood it right. That's why Rome in the scriptures is a false religion. It's a work salvation. And they are just like those Jews who couldn't get over it. And uh, earlier today, someone was mentioning in the lunchroom that they almost dropped the, uh, the bread today, and I made a joke. I was back there, I said, you know, back in the third century, they would have had a big theological controversy whether the, that bread was defiled, and if you ate that bread, are you going to be cursed? <laughs> so... The the thing about it here is, I'll never forget, I'll close with this. When I was in seminary, every Tuesday night for about two years, I would go out to a retirement home to preach to some elderly ladies the word of God. I was invited. And one lady who came, she was a... um, 
Well, first of all, the retirement center was owned by the Roman Catholic Church. Secondly, this one woman who started coming to the Bible study, she really was excited about the Bible study because she said, this is the first time I've actually read and studied the Bible that this young man's teaching us. Well, the local priest found out (laughs) that a Protestant was uh, teaching the Bible study. Well, let's put it this way. One time we couldn't meet where we normally could in the room. And this lady who was in the Roman Catholic Church, she said, well, come to my room. When the Roman priest found that out, he came to her and raked her over the coals. You know what she said to him? She says, I don't care because this young man teaches me the Bible. <laughs> so he said, so basically said, just take a hike. <laughs> well, about a year later, she wasn't really ill, but she will suddenly die. And um, her son calls me up, says, John, my mother has died. I said, oh. She says, John, my mother's thought so highly of you. Would you be a pallbearer in the funeral? Okay. So I go out there. I'd never been in a Roman Catholic church until that moment. And uh, had an interesting talk with the son who was in seminary in Rome studying for the ministry. We had an interesting chat. Now, I knew something about Rome's view of the Mass, and I was struggling. So here I'm a pallbearer, and I'm struggling whether I'm going to take <laughs> the communion, which, by the way, they, it's only. The bread. That's interesting. So when I, I'm struggling there, and so I said, oh, I thought to myself, so I won't make a scene, I'll go up. I go up, and, and the priest has the, the wafers, and I made the mistake of going like this. He looks at me and says, you're not Catholic, are you? <laughs> In other words, you do not touch the body of Jesus because it's been transubstantiated. That's why the priest puts it in your mouth. He go out and, and he puts it on your tongue. That's how you observe it because they really believe that is the actual body of Jesus. Thank goodness that Jesus says, that's not what I meant. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, be with us. Help us. We thank you that you drew us to yourself. We thank you that your spirit changed our heart, enlightened our mind. We praise your holy name for that. And give us a joy that we have, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Hallelujah. Amen.